morning. It's good to be with you again and enjoy this cool summer weather. We uh, find type A to be extremely hot this time of year, so we're greatly refreshed by the temperatures and the fellowship as we come home to visit here in the States. I uh, hope you can stay for the Sunday school hour. We uh, have a chance to share a PowerPoint presentation on our work in Taiwan and in East Asia among the Chinese people doing leadership training. So we welcome you to stay uh, for that time following the service. Also, uh, if you'd like a free copy of the book that I've just published based on uh, theology and the attributes of God, it's not an easy read. It's not a real uh, simple, uh, practical thing about how-tos but it's more of a foundations book about uh, looking at the way the attributes of God apply to our lives. And if you were here uh, two years ago, I think I did a seminar on uh, parenting, attempting to bring those attributes of God to connectivity with the parenting process. Well, this is more of the foundations material that's been even refined more since that time. You're welcome to have a free copy. Just sign your name uh, and your email address, and you can pick up a free copy out here by the... Uh, uh, what do you call it, the food snack area uh, outside on a table out there. Our text today is found in uh, Romans, sorry, in Ruth chapter 1. And we'll be reading the entire chapter. And then we'll be referring to the book of Ruth because uh, it's hard to preach just out of chapter one. Uh, it's kind of a downer. But we want to hear the, uh, the happy ending and we want to see two views of God's providence. If we compare Naomi's view of what God is doing in chapter one and how the story ends, and it's actually not the end of the story, even as we sang in our last song, uh, we're building the kingdom of God, which... Uh, overcomes and crushes all other kingdoms and his kingdom will be established as the mountain and all the earth. And so she's part of this grand narrative of God building his kingdom. She can't see in her little slice of what's happening, especially in chapter one, what's going on. And so we want to compare two views of God's providence. We want to look at her narrow analysis, as it were, too narrow of a view of God's providence and his love and kindness in chapter 1 and compare it with several other factors that God wants us to notice in the way that we look at his kindness and love and his providence as a way of taking care of us in the world. If we have too narrow a view of God's providence, we're going to be a lot like Naomi in chapter 1. If we have the big picture of God's providence as we read the whole book and as we read all the scriptures, we're going to see uh, much uh, more important themes that help us understand how do we know whether God loves us or not. Ruth chapter 1, reading the entire chapter. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and his name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. 
These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Melan and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no, no, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Naomi made some mistakes about God's providence. She looked at certain factors in the way that she analyzed what God was doing in her life and called it bitterness. Change my name. Call me bitter. Don't call me pleasant anymore. We all have faced different difficulties in our lives where we have wondered, God, what are you doing? Do you care? Are you hearing my prayers? Are you doing something about my difficulties and my situation? 
And often people will testify in such a time when they pray, when they ask God for help, they seem to find only silence. God, where are you? I can't hear you. You're not speaking to me. You're not telling me of your love and your kindness. I can't see you actively working in my life. And it's easy to doubt God's loving kindness in such a situation. Naomi, also in this situation, greatly doubted and made mistakes about what God was doing in her analysis. So we want to look at what the factors that she considered made her life full. What were the factors that made her life empty and meaningless? And we want to compare that with all of Scripture, with the whole book of Ruth, and see what really should be the hierarchy of needs that God wants us to analyze, the factors that demonstrate his love to us. Abraham Maslow developed a triangle, as he called uh, a hierarchy of human needs, which I don't think very well describes anything what scripture teaches. But uh, Naomi was putting the wrong thing at the pinnacle of what she thought was her most important need, what would make her life full. And we need to see what that was and compare it with what the rest of the story fills in as what ought to make our lives the pinnacle of human existence. And yes, God knows our earthly need. He has not neglected us in our need for daily bread. But what are the significant factors that we should use in determining God's purposes for us? The story uh, is written in the time of the judges. And if you're familiar with this book in the Bible, the book of Judges, the recurring theme in that book, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Probably refers to the chaos that existed in Israel's worship, neglecting the appointed place of sacrifice, doing whatever they felt, worshiping whoever they felt uh, was the right God. There was a famine in the land, and Deuteronomy 28 says famine is associated with God's judgment, God's curse for failing to obey his law. So Naomi and her husband Elimelech flee sort of as refugees, fleeing starvation from Israel to the land of Moab. There her husband dies, and she's left a helpless widow. Her sons Melan and Kilian marry Moabite women, and they die. Now this is a cross-cultural situation. They moved across the border, now, in those days, uh, they didn't carry passports like we do today. Uh, probably not the same kind of border control, uh, people stopping you at the, on the roads, but they did have things like that and collecting taxes and other ways of doing this. But the Moabites and the Jews were not friendly. Now, this is not quite the same, but uh, if you're a Steeler fan and you go down to Baltimore... The Ravens might not like you if you're wearing a big Steeler shirt in the middle of their field. That's a, a much more uh, low-level view of prejudice, but uh, you could imagine the Moabites and the Jews did not get along. There was a history of animosity and enmity uh, for good reason. They were considered outcast by Israel. They were not allowed into the assembly of the Lord, 
They were not allowed to intermarry with them or to eat the Passover. They were not allowed to make covenant with the Moabites or let them live in the land after they went into the promised land. These were the children of Lot's daughters, born of incest with their father. They attacked Israel when they left Egypt to go into the promised land. Instead of letting them pass unharmed, they declared war, the Moabites and the Amorites. So there's a history, a warfare history. There's a history of bad blood, as it were. And then there's the story in Numbers 22 to 25 of the king of Moab, but Balak hiring the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. And if you're familiar with that story, he was not able to curse Israel. God gave him words of blessing instead of cursing. So if we read the story, it appears that uh, Balaam figured out another way that God would judge Israel and told Balak what to do. Send prostitutes in among Israel in Numbers 25, and then God will be so angry with them, he will judge them for their sin. Uh, apparently this is what happened because of the way the New Testament describes the sin of Balaam in the book of Revelation uh, related with sexual immorality. So they were sojourners in another country uh, and a difficult time. Uh, Naomi hears that Israel's famine has ended and so it's time to go back. Maybe there's a hope. Maybe there's a future. So she says to her two daughters-in-law, go back, because there's a deep prejudice between Moab, Moab and Israel, and if these two widows go back, that's even less of a social status. What are you going to have back in Israel except prejudice? What are you going to experience other than people turning their back on you and calling you names and looking down their noses at you for being Moabite women. Not just Moabites, but Moabite women. Uh, they're viewed as the lowest of the low. They're probably, they're all prostitutes. You know, this sort of cultural stereotyping is possible. So Naomi says, my God has dealt bitterly with me. It is my sin that has brought this punishment upon me. Uh, you could imagine this sort of a, a way of thinking. And her skepticism about Ruth or Orpah ever having a life or ever having a husband is justified. Why go back with me? This is, this is like a death sentence. This is like a cultural prejudice. You're walking into a trap. Don't go with me. So Naomi's uh, resistance and telling them to go home is... is you can tell there's a kindness in it, even though there's a, a sorrow in it. So what is it that defined Naomi's life in, these, in this first chapter? How does she describe fullness and emptiness? Well, you can see how verse uh, 20 and 21 speak of it. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The translation of the word Mara is bitter. 
I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So what does this mean? I went away full. Well, there was a famine in Israel when they left. So it wasn't like they had lots of money when they left. But what does she mean, I went away full and came back empty? Well, the story, most logically to conclude, it's her husband. She went away full. She had a husband when she left, and now she's coming back a widow, empty. She went away full, and even there, she got more fullness. Uh, her, her sons were able to marry. There was hope for the future, for having children, for having longevity, for having social status, for having economic security. So if we could use perhaps uh, three symbols to identify Naomi's testimony of fullness versus emptiness, we could use a ring, uh, that is marriage, my spouse is with me, my spouse, spouses, my daughters-in-law are with my sons, so marriage ranked very high on Naomi's view of security and linked it with the definition of God's kindness and love, a ring. The second, although more implied, would be a wallet. Husbands and, and sons represent a kind of financial stability, ability to produce income, and both are gone. And now there are not just one, but three widows the lowest of the low in terms of social status and in terms of economic possibilities for the future. A ring, a wallet. I couldn't bring it in my pocket today, but if you could imagine a stroller, uh, a baby stroller, that would be the third symbol. A ring, a wallet, and a baby stroller. But God has taken all these away from me. I am empty. I've come back empty. Call me Mara, my life is bitter. So on the hierarchy of, of Naomi's list of important needs, she ranked these and linked these with God's kindness, with God's provision of fullness, of life, of shalom. But the story doesn't end there, thankfully. We like happy endings, and Ruth is a story of happy endings, but also walking through the valley of the shadow of death. The biblical author of the book of Ruth wants us to see something else, something a little different about the way we define God's love and whether he cares for us, whether he's listening to our prayers, whether he knows what we need. And I'm going to use some other metaphors. Obviously, it's hard to represent, but first I'm going to use a club pass, a membership card. One of the big stories of the book of Ruth is how a foreigner comes into Israel 
and adopts, as it were, God adopts the foreigner. God becomes Ruth's God. God draws Ruth to himself in a covenant of membership. This is amazing what Ruth says to Naomi. Your God will be my God. Not just that, because she's seen for at least 10 years of living in this family and among this household, she's seen the God of Israel compared to Moabite gods, and she says, this is the God I want. There's something different here. This is a God of kindness, a God of compassion, a God who cares. There's the other gods of Moab. She says, I don't want them. That's emptiness. This is fullness. I want your God. And so it's Ruth's membership, as it were. She adopts and and joins the family of God that is the part of the big narrative of the book of Ruth that the author wants us to see. How God's showing his kindness and love is through salvation. Saving a foreign widow and bringing her into the family of God's people. Giving her membership, as it were, in the people of God. This is what God wants us to see is a definition of fullness. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. And it's not just a promise to stay as long as you're alive, Naomi, because life is going to suck. I don't want to stay in this place any longer. I'm going to go back to Moab. I'm just going to be helpful to you. No. Where you die, I will die. She's saying, even after you pass away, the great likelihood that, that Naomi's going to pass away first, 20, 30, 50 years more, I'm willing to stay in your land. This is not just fair-weather Christianity. I'm going to stay even as a lonely widow in a land where nobody cares about me, if that's what it takes. That's amazing. You can sort of picture something like the widow who came to Jesus and said do something for me help me heal my son and Jesus said I came to the lost sheep of Israel and she says but even the dogs under the table can eat the crumbs that's sort of what Ruth's attitude here just amazing faith and willingness to suffer and go into the face of suffering if that's what it takes to be identified with the people of God. Membership, that's what God's saying and what the book of Ruth is saying. A bigger and most important need of and most important evidence of God's loving kindness is his salvation. Naomi missed that. Her factor analysis was too small. And she said, God sent me away full and I brought me back empty. Call me Mara. She failed to see what God was doing in Ruth's life to save a foreign widow and bring her into the family of God. A second illustration I want to use is a Band-Aid. A Band-Aid represents healing, represents binding up of wounds, of recovery from sickness and of injury. The ministry of the modern-day church is given 
to the deacons to put band-aids, as it were, on the physical needs of his people. And that God had made provision for this in Israel. There was, when they returned to Israel in the time of the barley harvest, as kind of a foreshadowing that things are about to change for Naomi. There's things happening. There's a return of crops. The famine is concluded. But it's not simply that there's food available in Israel. It's that God has already made provision within the laws that he has set up for his people. Something called the gleaning laws, where widows were permitted to go out in the fields and pick up the leftovers and take them home to eat. God had already made provision, a band-aid as it were, to help them in their time of suffering, represented by the band-aid, the diaconal ministry of mercy among his people. And this, when they return to the context and the community of God's people, these two widows were able to experience how God had already made provision for weak and helpless widows and to show them his love. See, they had left the context of love and of community compassion. They'd gone to Moab where there are no gleaning laws. There's no one there necessarily to help you except your your extended family. But God makes provision in the land of Israel to help the poor. So the band-aid represents another way God shows his love, the gleaning laws, and the second way he shows it is through the kinsman redeemer law, which we don't have time to read the whole story, but if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, a foreign widow is allowed to be remarried by the next of kin, so that the next of kin can uh, have a child for this family, so this family can continue and own the land where God has allotted them. So there's a, an heir to take over and manage the property that God has given to this family in Bethlehem. So two laws that God has given to show his mercy and compassion, the gleaning laws, the kinsman redeemer law, and Boaz ultimately ends up marrying Ruth. And they have a son. The line is continued. There is provision for an heir to take over and to manage the land. So the band-aid represents another way God shows his kindness to these two widows. The diaconal ministry of mercy and compassion through his people and they get help in time of need. There's a third evidence, and I'm going to use a pen to illustrate how God shows his love to Naomi. Ruth was not a slacker. She was on her toes. I mean, she, the first thing she gets back in the land, of course, Naomi gives her some direction, but she wasn't afraid to get out there in the thick of things and get the job done. Amazing boldness that Ruth displayed as a foreign widow in a foreign land. Probably doesn't speak a whole lot of Hebrew. But apparently the story goes that there's some communication so that she must have learned to speak some Hebrew in, in the family. 
Uh, it's difficult to say. The story doesn't give us a lot of indication about the language barrier that probably existed. But when I first got to Taiwan, I could hardly speak a, a word of Mandarin. And going out just to do a simple thing, like buy medicine, was, I mean, you're pointing and you're saying one or two words and you're making gyrations and trying to communicate. Somehow, Ruth was able to communicate. But this, you can just imagine a foreign widow in a land. She, I use the pen to illustrate her industriousness. She's out there filling out applications, job applications. She's doing her job. She's getting the, the job done, whatever Naomi gives her to do. And in two ways, she goes out in the field to glean. And she's not the lazy gleaner. She's out there all day long in the hot of the sun doing the best that she can do. And Boaz notices her industriousness. And Boaz notices that she came back to help Naomi and the difficult decision that that would have been for her. And notices that not only has she left her land, but she left her gods. And Boaz says, you've come to take shelter under the wings of the God of Israel. So I use the pen to illustrate Ruth's industriousness. She was kind she was noted for her kindness. She was noted for her faithfulness, for her hard work ethic. They didn't sulk and say, God, we're so terrible. We're just weak widows who can't do anything. They went out and she went out and got busy, did whatever she could do. And God opened doors as she got busy, as she asked for help. They knew they couldn't do it on their own. So she got busy applying for help. So you can imagine sort of filling out applications with the pen. Ruth gets busy doing, applying, and asking for the mercy of the community. We could use uh, a similar, uh, not only is she asking for help and applying for help, but she's working hard gloves. She's out there in the field. These are well-used gloves Russ, Ross gave me this morning to use for this illustration. You can tell he works hard. There's a perseverance about working, a hard work ethic. And I want to use these gloves to illustrate chapter three. When Ruth gets the, the instruction from Naomi to say, this is really weird. Now, if you're familiar with the story, Ruth, I want you to go when Boaz has had a little bit to drink, he's happy, he's laying down in the field out there somewhere, work, you know, near the side of his field in a little tent. I want you to go and lift up the cover under his feet and lay down next to him and tell him he's a kinsman redeemer. You realize... A Moabite woman, if, you, if you're familiar with the, the story of Israel and the Moabites sending the prostitutes through Balaam into Israel, I mean, this looks like the story repeated. Ruth, you could get busted here for immorality. You're called a virtuous, kind woman, but if you do this and it's taken the wrong way, somebody sees what you're doing, they could say, what on earth? But she does, and she obeys Naomi's instructions to the letter. And God providentially arranges this marriage between Boaz and Ruth. 
She humbled herself, submitted to Naomi's instruction, and took the risk, as it were, to ask for this help for a kinsman redeemer. And God blessed that and opened a door, a blessing. So these are the evidences that Naomi missed. I went away full and came back empty. Call me Mara. But God had other things in store for her. And it's not that God doesn't care about our physical needs or Naomi and Ruth's physical needs. But they aren't at the pinnacle of what God wants us to seek after. The New Testament gives us this instruction, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in Matthew chapter 6, says all these other things, the food, the clothing, the houses that the Gentiles seek for, these will be provided for you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's at the pinnacle, the hierarchy of God's appointed provision and the evidence of God's loving kindness, the pinnacle evidence of God's loving kindness is that he's opened the kingdom to every tribe and every nation and every language and said, come into my house. banquet is not yet full. Come to the marriage feast of the Lamb. So God gives other evidences, you might say. The membership in his house, the provision, the diaconal mercy ministries among his people, and then it was industriousness, doing good work that opened new doors for them to be provided for and God showed his loving kindness to them. How do we know that this is the story and the meaning of, of the book of Ruth? Well, and, and how do we know this is the definition of the love of God? Well, the New Testament gives us this, but also the ending of the book of Ruth is, is striking. If you see chapter 4, after the marriage, Boaz, there's a, a little side drama there. Uh, Boaz is not the closest kinsman redeemer, so he has to work it out and figure out whether the first closest kinsman redeemer wants to marry Ruth. And he doesn't after he finds out. Uh, he, first he does because he wants the land. Then he doesn't because he finds out he has to marry a Moabite. And then Boaz agrees and apparently Boaz is somewhat elderly, so he's surprised. Maybe he's not the most handsome guy in Bethlehem. And uh, he's surprised that Ruth would, would even propose. So in chapter 4, uh, Boaz works out the deal, agrees to marry Ruth and redeem the land of Naomi, uh, take it out of debt, as it were, and uh, buy the field of Naomi's family and take... Ruth the Moabite to be his wife in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That's Ruth chapter 4 and verse 5. So Boaz does this, and then the, the elders of the city, it's uh, quite striking uh, what they say in response to all this, uh, what Boaz is willing to do. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house 
like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then Ruth 4.14, then the woman said to Naomi, and here's the evidence of the blessing, the blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. I mean, two sons, that was evidence of social status, of financial future, protection for the future. But here, look what they say. They turn the whole sociocultural economic thing on its head and say, a foreign widow is more blessed to you than seven sons. Well, one of the reasons probably that Ruth and the, the big narrative of scripture is given to us, and, and the story is really about Naomi uh, in many ways, but the, the book is titled The Book of Ruth. Uh, and it's striking that the, uh, a book of the Bible would be named after a Moabite woman. Also another evidence of God's kindness to the nations. But the, the child born to Ruth is the grandfather of King David. And so part of the the narrative, the grand narrative of what's happening in this story that that Naomi can't see in chapter 1, her single-factor analysis of God's providence is too narrow. She needs to look at the big picture and see what God's fullness means in terms of salvation, in terms of the diaconal provision of God's people as another evidence of his love, in terms of the work ethic that he has given to provide for her through Ruth and the people of God, and ultimately to provide a redeemer, not just a kinsman redeemer to give them an offspring for their particular inheritance, but this has implications for all the people of Israel, King David, and the promises of the covenant given to David that there will be an eternal king who sits on the throne. This is part of the grand narrative of God's salvation history and what he's doing to show his love. So this morning, as you consider and as we come to the Lord's table, what do you look at? What factors are you analyzing to ask yourself, does God love me? Is God taking care of me? Does he hear my prayers? It's not just whether you're married or single, divorced or widowed. It's not just whether you have a big retirement account or money in the bank, God cares for these things. He says to pray for your daily bread. God doesn't overlook our need. He created us physical in a physical world. And a baby stroller, he he loves kids. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. But if you're not able to have children, what's the pinnacle evidence of God's love? Membership in the people of God. Provision 
of kindness, diaconal kindness by the community of God's people. And don't sit there and mope. Get busy. Do what you can do to improve life with a hard work ethic. And God will open new doors. But ultimately, his love is shown in Jesus Christ. And as we come to the Lord's Supper today, we know his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is how we know. All the other evidences, the physical provision that God gives us, our daily bread, a spouse, children, money in the bank. Seek first the kingdom, and all these other things will be provided. Know my love in Christ, because nothing in this world can separate us from that love. Let's pray. Father, we ask, do this miraculous work in our hearts. Teach us to view your providence from the power of your salvation and your saving grace and to know that your love is unchanging, that it keeps and saves, that from the foundation of the world you have elected, you have purposed, you've sent proclaimers and witnesses of your salvation to us some through family members, through parents, through friends, that we might know the saving love of Jesus. And in this we rejoice as the greatest evidence of your sovereign love. Help us to be content with food and clothing and all the rest that you provide. You are a gracious God, so generous to give us many things above and beyond, even what we ask for in physical terms. But we pray, let us not take our eyes off Jesus. Let us look to him in the Lord's Supper as the giver of eternal life and the evidence of your saving love and the presence of your Holy Spirit in our hearts as the guarantee that we will share in the heavenly marriage feast of the Lamb in a place where there is no more suffering and tears and we will no longer experience the bitternesses that Naomi experienced We pray in Jesus' name.